Thank you for listening to this podcast from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you would like to learn more about Emanuel or find more resources like this one, visit our website at emanuelbirmingham.com. Jesus, thank you for uh, the morning you've given us, uh, for your kindness and grace to us, to bring us up, uh, to bring us here to this place, to allow us to gather together as a body of Christ. And um, let's pray that you would uh, draw and meet us, that you would call us, uh, to find joy in you and to worship you. you bring forth your spirit uh, to encourage us and to teach us. I thank you for Eric, for um, his um, sacrifice and his willingness to lead this class. I just ask you to speak to him now. He would give us a good discussion. Uh, he would um, call us to just sharpen each other uh, and to learn together and uh, to be more like you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. Welcome to Equip Class. Um, you've got notes in front of you, which is good. Uh, I'm surprised that I've been able to keep that up, to be honest. Um, and I was questioning whether or not I should even keep printing them out. And then these lovely people showed up with, can I just, with an actual organizing device. It's like they're going to hold it for posterity's sake or whatever. You know, maybe even go back and learn from it some more. Um, I left them at home, but now I know. Please do. Let's let's in, let's institute the sticker system. That'd be great. Man. Um, call them pious points. <laughs> That's the funniest thing I've heard all day. That's great. Pious points. Good job. Yes. Um, well then, uh, let's see. What have we been talking about last? You know, forever. Anybody? That's all right. One of those. Um, we talk about what? Yes, that's right. We've been talking about the Imago Day and its implications. Honestly, anything that you remember from when you've been here for the last six weeks, just just spit it out. You know, walking the topics as they happen biblically in this gracious story and yes. unpacking them yes. as they happen and interact with our culture. Yep. But we've been stuck in Genesis 1, so we actually haven't gotten very far into the Bible. What else? <laughs> it's not the worst place to be stuck. Well, no, it's not. And I'm okay with that. Theological anthropology. So basically, not just what we say about who we are, but what God says about who we are. Yeah, not just what we say about who we are, but what God says about who we are. It's good. I like the way you said that. Man, I love our worship team. I'm sorry. I'm so distracted. I just wish (laughs) we could somehow have more separation. soundtrack class. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it definitely is intruding. And it's like I'd close the door and I do normally, but it doesn't help. It's coming through the floor. I can feel it. Anyways, um, 
Cody, I'm sorry if you're listening to this. I love you. Had a good discussion about what sin is. Okay, had a good discussion. Let's talk about economics. We did talk about economics. That's right. Anything else? We talked about what's male and female. We did briefly talk about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how one of the definitions of sin that you can trace back to Augustine is um, as a disordered love um, being the definition. So when I fail to love that which I should love um, and when I love the things that I should not love, basically. Or anywhere in between. You can just like get things out of order. So like you should love this thing, but just not as much as you should love this thing. But yet you flipped them, and now you love this more than this. One of guiding questions, what does human flourishing look like? Yes. So we've shifted, um, I think, maybe, was it starting last week or this week? We uh, shifted out of the um, theological overview, kind of just saying, okay, what does the Bible say, and how should we think about it? to now sort of theological implications, like if this is true, then what are the things that we can draw from that? All right, and so um, one of the first things that, uh, that I wanted to talk about in light of the portrait that I put forward is uh, the concept of rights, um, because I think that that is the foundation of so many different things, obviously society, but even our understanding of our relationship to one another. Um, and so this week we're going to talk about rights. And because we're Christians, um, the, you know, so like at one level, all of society would recognize the language of rights. Okay. And we're going to see in a moment how they, but there's trouble with that. Um, but what's unique to us as Christians and, and what flows from being made in the image of God, what flows from the biblical portrait of both um, creation and redemption is not just rights, but maybe maybe more fundamentally is responsibilities. Um, you know, as we cross the New Testament line, at the coming of Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, the Spirit's been sent. Now it's more uh, a question of what rights can we give up in order for the gospel to be made known. You know, those are really the disciples. Um, it's not about what they can accrue or do or what Rome should, you know, afford to them or whatever. I mean, that was not even on the table. Um, you know, and if, if the church had been in the early church about trying to fight for their rights in Rome, then we probably wouldn't be here today because that's not the ethos. That's not the center of the Christ-centered life. It's about, you know, what Christ said he came to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, and that that should be us. Um, and so we'll talk about responsibilities next week, but we're going to start with rights today. Um, and so, uh, you know, the first theological implication that flows from the Imago Day and the questions about human flourishing are that we are dignified. We are dignified because we are made in the image of God. Um, now, to set this up, this talk up, um, Michael J. Perry, uh, who's a law professor at Emory University, Emory University in Atlanta, uh, has said that human rights are made up of two primary elements, 
First, all people are inherently dignified or have inherent dignity, and all people should structure their lives accordingly or like build their lives around this fact. Um, and I think that's helpful. Um, a, uh, another law professor slash practicer, um, Alan Dershowitz, says, but if rights are solely the product of human lawmaking, if they are inventions rather than discoveries, then they are subject to modification, even abrogation, by the same source that devised them in the first place. So what I'd like to do, as I always do, I don't know how Cherie really feels about this, but I like to look at all the other options and then talk about the right option first. So that's what we're doing, Cherie. We're going to look at all the things that we don't agree with and then look at what we do agree with at the end. Okay? So I'm not endorsing the first three of these, only the fourth one. Okay? So um, rights. Where do rights come from? So we're going to look at four theories of where rights come from. Um, have you ever thought about this before? Anybody in the room ever thought about, like, where do my rights come from? What are our rights? Hmm? I might have. You might have. I might have crossed my mind, but I don't think I've ever thought really deeply. Well, today's your day then. Okay. And you may not be alone. Has anyone ever thought about where your rights come from? Please, this discussion. The only reason I have is because Tim used to write papers on I can imagine. So you don't you don't count because you have a professor for a husband. That's the only reason. <laughs> you add in at the end after everyone else is shared. How about that? That's what. About right, so much at the breakfast table, but my girls have asked questions about why you would disobey certain laws or that you could disobey a certain law. Okay. Which I think might trickle back to a right. It would. Yeah, absolutely. If you disobey a lot because the government's laws don't line up with biblical laws. Yeah, yeah. That's about as close as we've gotten. Okay, so what about outside of your family context? Just like, you know, you're 22 years old <laughs> and, uh, you know, you've gone through some life. <laughs> and um, <laughs> you've gone through some life now at this point. You know, have you ever considered it, whether that was in college or in high school or whatever. And so what have you thought? Where do my rights come from? This may sound super specific, but it's on my mind because I've been Dude. writing a paper about it. Okay. So I'm in, like, some background. I'm in this class called Space Law. Space Law? Like like outer space? Yes. There's laws to outer space. Yes. But even the definition of where outer space begins is questionable. And yeah, so right. The concept of borders is something that I've been writing about. Whoa, this is um, great. And so that like really, I don't know, I've just been thinking about, especially this quote here, like the inventions rather than discoveries that are subject to modification and borders, of course, have shifted yeah. throughout all of history. Uh -huh. um, I don't know if that was very apropos. Yeah, okay, so we can kind of go that direction a little bit if it helps shed light on it. Um, so let's talk about, you know, the fun topic of uh, illegal immigration. So do illegal immigrants um, have rights in our country? Should they have rights? And if they do and if they should, what should those be and where do they come from and who gets to decide? Go, discuss. Well, I think they should because God created all people to be equal. Okay. So, and everyone has the right to asylum. That's okay. That's a 
human right. Where does that come from? Um, well, is it discovered or is it an invention? That's the question. So the question is, where would you ground the right to asylum at in the biblical testimony? When they say to take care of, what is that, what's the word? Aliens, I think, is one of the Sojourner. Mm -hmm. Depends on your translation. They're supposed to take care of those people. Okay, so looking at, you know, Old Testament Israel and the various laws about you know, looking after the sojourner and the widow and the orphan and the um, poor. Okay, so sojourner being one of those people who are not part of the, the nation state of Israel. But what happens when that nation state is disbanded in the new covenant and the covenant is shifted from this geopolitical people group with God as their king to now a dispersed people of all nations across the face of the planet? See where those ethics have influenced the various states around the world to where they feel responsibility to a certain degree to perpetuate those things. But we as a church, the sort of the uh, inheritors of that same responsibility should, I think, step up a lot um, to help fill the gaps where the state political structure fails. Okay. And should we, as the church, inherit that particular ethic or responsibility? Better yet, can we, as the church, can we determine what right someone has to presence in our in this country? Well, somebody has to. They do, yeah. So, you know, the question is just who is actually going to make that decision? Okay. Rights are not bestowed yeah. upon any given uh, people. Okay. So there's always going to be some decision made one way or another, for better or worse. But can all rights be um, reduced to that concept? To and I'm thinking more broadly in thinking there are like political rights and they're just inherent rights that we have yeah. as human beings. And so we should maybe this jumps us back into the law category. We don't necessarily offer everyone who crosses the border the ability to vote, per se, um, because they are not they're, they're illegal. However, if they go through the right categories to become a legal citizen, then I want, by all means want them to be able to do that because now they're a citizen. But So I think we have to maybe break it into categories. There's rights that you have because you're a human being, and there's political rights that you have because you're a member of that community, a citizen. So. There we go. That's good. Well, I think about Jesus saying when he gives him that, as a look at the paying the taxes. Yeah, that's right. Give to God what's God and to Caesar what's Caesar. Mm -hmm. So we have to keep that in mind as well. Yeah, even Jesus makes that distinction. Yeah, because I, I think about that, and I do wonder, I think we as Christians need to try to influence our nation no. We should just totally like let this thing burn. No, influence it to do the things that we know are right, but when it chooses not to, doesn't mean that we can agree with that. We still have a responsibility. Because mm -hmm. I think about after Christ died and was resurrected, and as the church began, 
the world was nothing like it is now. Rights were not a thing. Mm-hmm. The dignity of human beings was not there. Mm-hmm. People were not treated that way at all, but it was the church that showed the love of God and gave the dignity to people and gave them rights, so to speak, mm-hmm. in the way that they treated them, which was so different, and that's what influenced the rest of the world. So now people say, where do they get this? Oh, you have this right. Well, it came from there. Mm-hmm. So realize that that's mm-hmm. where this idea comes from. So I guess I just think, I personally struggle with how much, how hard do we work to make our country Christian? Because it wasn't, that wasn't where Jesus said we were to put our energies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he, he wasn't a political messiah. No. And the hard part is, you know, following him has political implications. Yeah. But, you know, if we make politics the center of faith, then we've lost it. It's that Jesus is the center and then radiating out from him have all of these ripples into these other domains of our life, you know, um, because he's the sovereign Lord over everything, not just over like our morality or something. Um, so, uh, so with the categories, then we'll say political or like civil rights versus like, you know, human or inherent rights. Um, Let's uh, let's ask the question then. What what are some inherent rights, things that are due to you because of being a person, a human? I mean, I would consider the right to asylum inherent. Okay. Not a civil product of human lawmaking. Okay, and why do you say that? Well, because from like the because humans are inherently dignified and if you're being persecuted in your home country then you should have a right to flee and and seek asylum elsewhere so with that then um a inherent right you're saying is to basically be able to seek asylum and be accepted in whatever country of your choosing and is that then um is that the extent of it? Like, I should be able to live here, but have no other sort of additional rights? Well, I think what Kristen said, like, once you go through those proper channels, you should be on the track to, if that is your desire, to becoming fully integrated, you know, with the society that you've chosen to live in, you know. Okay. So let me... And then you start adding civil liberties on top of that because you've become a citizen. So let me ask you this now. Um, we, you know, we have a country of roughly 320, maybe 340 million Americans. Um, and in theory, like hypothetically, let's say over the next six weeks, um, 320 million people from around the world showed up at our borders because of some massive persecution. Like, let's say... Russia and the Ukrainian situation, let's say China decided to, you know, um, declare war against Taiwan and some other surrounding countries and, you know, and then in Afghanistan. I mean, let's just say that all of these kind of somewhat tenuous situations led to like this crazy World War III 
and people are coming to America and 320 million. So the country has the potential to double in a very, very short amount of time. Um, what, does that change anything? No, I mean, the volume changes, right? And I don't think America currently has the infrastructure to handle what we currently have. So just to triple, quadruple the volume would be overwhelming the system, I guess. And so I know America's quick to not do anything as far as, you know, the path to citizenship for immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, would we have a moral, as a nation, would we have a moral obligation to accept all 320 million of them. To me, yeah, I mean, once they're vetted through the proper channels. I would disagree okay. that asylum is a deterrent right. Okay. Not that it's not good, but that it, because it is within the political construct, it therefore falls into the category of civil right. Okay. Simply because it, it's, you cannot disassociate it from a country. You can't associate that topic from talking about borders, so it falls in that category for me. But yeah. I mean, if we're talking about just like trying to categorize things, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you might say it's a really important political, you know, right that we as a country would want to enshrine as being important and valuable. I asked the question of volume because, you know, in a ten-week span, if the country doubled, it would it would literally cripple us. And so there would be millions upon millions of families who would then go from, you know, relative, you know, wealth to poverty. Children who had homes now on the street because the economy would crumble under that kind of pressure. Um, there would be no... It's not obviously realistic to move that many people in that short time frame. No, it's it's not, but it illustrates the the yeah, point yeah, yeah. to say that then you raise a whole new set of moral concerns, and then there's a moral hierarchy that you have to adjudicate. Like, okay, what's more important here, you know? And the, not to mention the lower class, like people who are already on the edge, you know. Um, and so, does the country have a greater level of moral responsibility to those who are its citizens in that scenario than to those who are not? People who are already coming, who are in, you know, running from persecution, abject poverty, etc., because of some crazy circumstance, they're in that situation, yes. But then, by accepting them, are you then actually expanding the number of people who are in a similar situation, um, who you actually had some kind of, you know, important relationship with before, you know, that you know there was an agreement of protection of blah blah blah, you know, so. I th I'm with, I think it might be a really important political right that we need to, as Christians, carefully think about, but also advocate for. Um, I think it's harder in my mind as I think about the Bible to say, okay, like, yeah, this is inherent, you know, in who we are as people. Um, and I can come back to some actual, some other reasons why, but I'm curious, can you name any other rights that you think are inherent? I think the one we're fishing for that precedes asylum and those types of things, it's the right to life. Yeah. Okay. And so if that is threatened by an external force, we bear, maybe there's other responsibilities that compete against it, like with our own citizens or things like that, but we bear a certain moral weight to help preserve the right to life for an individual. And that um, should really know no borders, right? I mean. And 
that moral responsibility. I agree to an extent. This kind of goes back to the conversation a couple weeks ago with Augustine's quote about those that are closest to you, you have a special duty to, I'm paraphrasing. Mm, right. That can easily also be used to say, I'm going to care for me and mine and everybody else's, you know, external. Yeah. Um, so you have to balance that with also mm -hmm. the larger responsibility to mm -hmm. the other. That's good. That's really good. So then in that schema, if I wish I had a whiteboard, that'd be great. In that schema, um, you know, we have a proximity um, responsibility. So in the smallest circle, it's, you know, me and my wife. And then a slightly outer circle, it's me and my wife and my children. And then in a slightly larger circle, it's my extended family. And then from there, it might be my literal physical community, potentially, or maybe it's friends that I've developed relationships with and kind of have a long, you know, I'm not sure. And But you kind of keep going from there. But what's underneath the circles is a, is a fact of life and reality is that there are limited resources at my disposal. And I have to allocate those resources accordingly to the responsibilities that I've deemed that, that are there. And so that's true of, of individuals. It's also true of a country, too. So, yes, right to life, I think, is an inherent one. But then the question is, whose responsibility is it most nearly to preserve person X's life or whatever? And so, you know, maybe it's their mom and dad. Okay, well, they were killed in a genocide or whatever. Maybe it's their community. Well, they're on the flea. Well, maybe it's their, you know, government, or their government is the one doing it, or they're corrupt or whatever else, you know. Um, the, the next hardest thing is to say, you, America, or you, England, or you, Venezuela, or whatever, you have the responsibility. That's a harder one to get across to because within their own spheres, they have limited resources and responsibilities with those resources. Does that make sense? So these things are hard, you know, like this, I, I'm having fun because... This is like really complex, and what you don't ever hear when you're flipping through the news or reading like articles or whatever is what we're talking about right here, like the, the vast multi-layer. Um, some, some inherent rights, I think uh, life, like we said, I think is a, like most fundamental. Um, I, think, um, I think freedom of speech is pretty inherent, pretty fundamental, um, which underneath that is freedom of thought. Um, that, that's maybe more basic, and then speech is an, a manifestation or application of that. Um, here's a good one. Is, that, is, uh, is there a right to health care? Like an inherent right to health care? I guess that could kind of be tied back to life too, right? Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that builds upon that. Is that a civil liberty or is it an inherent one? Well, then with that one, how far do you take that, too? Is it that a person has a right to have, if there's only a certain number, if they need a heart? Mm -hmm. I mean, cause, and then there's all these new mm -hmm. surgeries that we're finding out that you can have, and all these the expenses keep going up, and they're much more difficult. So who has the right to which? And that's kind of how I see. Mm -hmm. Particularly, I mean, if you... Yeah, look at healthcare around the world. Mm -hmm. Our country is one of the few that has these types of surgeries that they don't have anywhere else, even though maybe they may have healthcare available. Better access to basic healthcare. Yes. Important to establish yes. what you mean. You know, when you say so, right. Yeah, where's the basic? That's a good one. Basic. You know, like nobody, nobody has turned away 
you know, in terms of like healthcare, from a standpoint of like, um, you know, we actually have people that come from other countries, you know, to America to receive healthcare, mm -hmm. right? Whereas, you know, that actually might not uh, be a legal ability for other countries, you know, where you could like, as Americans, you could go to that country and get healthcare. For, for various, you know, political reasons, right? So, I mean, technically, from an uh, American healthcare standpoint, like, everybody actually has the right, you know, and, and nobody is ever turned away from, you know, receiving healthcare because oh, really? of, yeah, they you are. know, you're this person or, you know, you're this category of person. What I'm saying is, like, from a from a standpoint of a right, like a, a political, like, this, the, these people here legally do not have, you know, the ability to get health care under the law, right? The, the, you know, the right, obviously, which yeah. has one of just the ability to pay for something. Right, if they so... they have the ability to pay, they don't get it. But yeah. you're saying if they have Yeah, that's the what money, I'm saying. When, yeah. say, when we talk about different. the establishment of a right, you know, we yes. need to be clear in terms of what, what are we talking about when we say a right. Because yes. A right is either a political, yep. you know, the, mm -hmm. a, a, the government allows you, you know, the, uh, you know, right to an attorney. Yeah. Another right. opportunity um, rather than that you're given. Well, so versus, you know, right, you know, I have the uh -huh. to pay for something. Yep. Yep. And so, um, so part of what you're saying is like the government is not negating your ability to get health care. They're not saying you're a second class citizen. Like and so, actually, do prevent certain groups of people yeah. from even like going into a hospital right. and receiving any kind of, of care? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It has nothing to do with whether they can pay for it or not. It just has to do with the fact that they. Or an excluded, you know, person, you know, within this country, right? It's yep. Like a, an actual legal framework, right? Uh huh. You know, or a denial of a right. Yes. So that's kind of the distinction you need to be careful at. Yep. And establish. When you say a right, what are we talking about when you say a right? Right, and so you know, with <laughs> my uh, my car tag, which I just got a random car tag, happens to start with the letters A O C on the back. Um, with if you're familiar. This is the yes. This is, this is the initials of a congresswoman named Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she's very outspoken, yes. very, um, very, very left, um, and uh, and very you know good with, uh, with the old Twitter and Instagram or whatever. And uh, she's young. She's she's probably younger than I am. Um, and. Uh, and so I always think about, like, did people think I intentionally put her initials on my, you know, license plate? But she would argue for a, that, you know, uh, a, a right to health care is a basic human right that every American should have. Not in that the government is, you know, somehow like, we, we don't need to make sure, we, mean, we need to make sure we don't negate someone being able to get it if they have the means to get it. Like, she is saying, like, no, the government, just as we as a government would provide a lawyer to someone in need, right, who's about to stand trial or whatever, we should provide, as a government, health care to all citizens, regardless of their ability to pay for it, because it's a human right. That's what she would say. You know, we're jumping back yeah. to the economics topic again. <laughs> 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 and that's kind of the distinction between, like, the Miranda rights... You know, like you have the right to remain silent. You know, you have a right to a trial by jury. Mm -hmm. You know, those are rights in the sense of the government says, civil. you know, we will give you the civil rights, not we are going to pay for, you know, X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. right? Which is, which is of course, really um, welfare. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, no, yeah. Um, 
and so that's kind of the distinction there. I mean, you technically do have, even in America, um, basically a hospital cannot turn anyone away, you know, essentially. Yeah, they can't. Well, I mean, technically, legally. Is there certain, I, I, and I'm not up on this. There, you know, but, but technically speaking, a hospital is not able to, like, just, you know, somebody comes in there. They're supposed to be able to get you stable, like patch you up or whatever, but not cure you per se any person that comes in with any kind of like trauma. Yeah. So if I come in with a concussion or like some like my head's bleeding, yeah. I, I, my understanding is they have to kind of get me patched up but not necessarily fixed. You know what I'm saying? Like right. I can't go in there with cancer and they're going to start treating me, I don't that, think. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of nuance there in terms of like what that means. But, you know, just talking about like... Like emergency like, situations. Emergency, you know, here, you know, within America, like... Um, I don't know. You know, you can see like another type of system where you have different classes of people, and you know, this person comes in, they have a blue armband, and they're like, "Oh, well, this mm. person can't be, you know, treated." Mm -hmm. um, you know, or they have a star on their armband. Ooh, okay. The distinction between a right and the limitation of it based on external factors like cost and those types of things, but there are. There is an argument for sometimes the government places limits like those that aren't explicit for the purpose of denying those inherent rights. Okay. It's like the right to vote. Um, if the government places something like poll tax or something like that on it, like they're not explicitly denying you the right to vote because you're black in our history or something like that, but, but you're putting they're a putting a barrier there intentionally or willfully not removing a barrier like cost or something like that that does directly impact a certain category of people. Mm -hmm. and i would say something like the right to vote i would put into the civil liberties mm -hmm. not in the inherent sure. yeah, um, because there's so many different kinds of government systems around the world and throughout history um, okay this has been good um, a lot of us have really not thought deeply about, you know, which category a set of rights really falls into. And sometimes we hold to be self-evident certain rights as being inherent when actually they probably fall into a kind of a civil liberties kind of situation, at least in our context. So with that as by way of introduction, where do rights come from? Um, well, there's uh, one theory called legal positivism. Um, and so basically rights are what society has agreed to uphold with respect to one another and codified it in law. Okay, codified means like, you know, code, like written into a law, um, enshrined it into law. Um, so in Western societies, these laws tend to be democratically ruled and their laws tend to be developed by majorities. Now, the problem is, what if the majority in a society denies these agreed-upon rights to a minority population because of its benefit to the majority? Anybody think of an example there? Poll taxes. I mean, civil rights for African Americans. Mm -hmm. And the only remedy for that is to appeal to a greater authority, like the civil rights movement did. Yeah, and yeah. Can you think of an example of who and what they would have said? MLK, like MLK or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Is I have a dream state. I think of letter Birmingham jail. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, he specifically says that, you know, um, it is unjust to follow an unjust law. And the, the whole ground for that is that there's a higher law. Um, all right. So 
legal positivism is useful, um, and I'm not rejecting it, but it can't be a grounds for rights. It can't be the foundation. It can't be the, what we are rooting the most fundamental liberties within. Does that make sense? You have perfect representation. What do you mean? Like, even if you have a member of every minority population and the majority all in the room collectively mm. agreeing on a rule, if it's perfectly represented. Yeah, I think that's, in, I think that's impossible. In, in, our, in real life, like in, in our, you know, even if you could get what you think is um, perfect representation in a fallen world, we will find other ways to organize ourselves into interest groups. So this is part of, you know, why the, the, um, why the uh, Constitution was set up the way it was. When you go back and read the 60-something, um, you know, articles that were written in the Federalist Papers, um, they're explaining the logic and the structure of these things. And so much of the Constitution being set up the way it is, is to, um, to, to use the power of the state against itself to protect minority classes and their most basic and fundamental rights. Because they, they see, they've looked in history and saw the danger of mob rule that came through democracy. And so that's why we're not a democracy purely. We're a democratic republic. So we're slowing the mechanism of change so that no one major interest group can trample the rights of a minority group. Does that make sense? So even if you got, you know, all the races represented equally, you know, there would end up being some interest that this perfectly kind of they had against it. So then it becomes not some some it's not really it's not racial, but maybe it's religious. Maybe it's not racial or religious, but it becomes, you know, some kind of um, economic interest or geographic interest or, you know. So there's always going to be a way in which we are looking out for ourselves and to the expense of the other. Um, does that make sense? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, there's, you're never going to get everyone on the same page. Yeah, yeah. not this side. Um, okay. Uh, the next kind would be status-based rights. So a lot of this I'm just taking out of a, an article that I used to prepare for today. So that's why you see a lot of quotes and maybe even some stuff I probably should have put in quotes but forgot to as I was preparing. So you might just assume that it's not mine, okay? Um, so uh, so status-based rights. All natural rights theories fix upon features that humans have by their nature, which make respect for certain rights appropriate. Non-religious theories tend to fix upon the same sorts of attributes described in more or less metaphysical or moralized terms like, okay, someone should have, you know, natural rights, you know, inalienable rights if this person has free will, rationality, autonomy, or the ability to regulate one's life in accordance with one's chosen conception of the good life. Well, if that describes you, which is all people, then you should have certain inherent or natural rights. Um, you have reached a certain status. Status theorists hold that rights should be respected because it is fitting to do so, and not because of the good consequences that will flow from so doing. So we don't need to make sure that everyone has rights because really that's in the best interest of everybody, you know, because if your rights are taken, oh no, it's going to be me next, you know, that's the consequences point of view. This is like, regardless of consequences, because we have, we have achieved a certain status by nature of being people with these faculties, then we deserve these rights. So um, Robert Nozick wrote that um, individuals have rights and there are things no person or group may do to them without violating their rights. 
My question is, why? Why? Why is that the case, Robert? If I can be so, we're on the first name basis. He's kind of a big deal, so that's not that's not good. Um, why is it that there are rights that there that um, and there are things that no person or group may do to those persons without violating their rights? Like, where are you getting this from? Okay, just because we're sentient beings, just because we have certain capacities, that's not enough to actually establish the existence of rights. So a person is constituted by his body, his mind, they are parts or aspects of him. For that very reason, it is fitting that he have primary say over what may be done to them, to himself. In giving him this authority, morality recognizes his existence as an individual with ends of his own, an independent being. Since that is what he is, he deserves this recognition. Again, why? Why? Who says? Why do you get to tell me that? Why can't I just take your life, your liberty, and your stuff? Because there's nothing stopping me. All right, so recap of this view. If we just examine human design and behavior close enough, we can determine what human nature is. That's kind of part of what this view is saying. And when we do that, then we know that we should respect kind of the rights of this thing called a human. That's a little truncated and reductionistic, but... But we still have not reached the ground floor of this theory. Does this theory live in a closed naturalistic universe where there is no supernatural, there is no um, you know, transcendent being called a god, in which evolution is the best explanation for the development of biological life as we know it? Because if that's the case, if that's the kind of world that these people are theorizing within, which I suspect it is for most, well... If so, then the natural order is based on the principle of survival of the fittest. The strong eats the weak. Natural selection. Holding to a concept of rights or inherent dignity is actually contra nature. It's actually the opposite of what we're being taught every day in our schools and in you know, science and education that we all kind of eked our way out of the goo and we are here today because we were better and stronger than something else. And so why should we not continue on in that same way? If the entire history of the world has worked this way, we're doing something really weird and not for a good reason, like not for a ultimate reason, not one rooted in reality. So that's not going to work. Then you have instrumental rights. Um, instrumental rights, you know, this might be a good place to stop. Um, you guys want to stop here or you want to try to get through instrumental? You know how much we need to do, so. All right, let me, let me hit instrumental, and then we'll be done, and we'll pick up bestowed next week, okay, which is, which is a good one. All right, instrumental. Instrumental theory of rights. Within an instrumental theory, uh, good consequences are the justification for promulgating and enforcing rights. So the consequences, the outcomes, that's what justifies protecting certain rights. If rights are justified only insofar as they generate good consequences, it may seem that the theory will need to prune its rights, perhaps severely, whenever maximum utility lies elsewhere. Whenever there's some better goods over here to try to reach, then certain rights are not going to be very helpful to that good, and we may have to limit those rights, right? So why is it not a rule in a two-level system, for example, that uh, one should frame an innocent man if this would prevent a major riot? Okay? So can you, you can kind of imagine a scenario like that, right? Is this right? just utilitarianism? Yes, this is a form of utilitarianism. Okay. Yeah. 
Good call. I, I don't always use the big words because, you know, not everybody knows what you do. And so, I'm just trying to understand. Yeah. It is a, John Stuart Mills, it's a form, you know, Jeremy Bentham, it's a form of, yeah, so John Stuart Mills, Jeremy Bentham, this is a form of what would flow out of their political theory, okay? Um, and so why is it not a rule on a two-level system, for example, that one should not frame an innocent man if it's going to prevent a major riot? Because the killing of a bunch of people in a major riot, which could happen, well, that's, that's worse than framing a man, right? And, you know, or why should it not be a rule that one should violate the right of an innocent not to be killed if this would prevent the killings of two innocents elsewhere, right? Worse, what happens when a charismatic leader comes along, accrues political power, and convinces a majority of Jews, uh, a majority uh, that Jews should be exterminated because they are not fully human, robbing you, the non-Jew, of what is rightfully yours? Because if society is determining what, the, what they think is good and what the greatest good is there for, then this makes, seems perfectly reasonable. All right, so next week I want to look at what I called and others have called bestowed rights and why this is actually the only workable ground by which we can understand and conceive of rights. Um, so, Father, thank you for our time together and for stirring our minds, um, helping us think deeply and difficultly. And um, we pray that even this week you would give us opportunities to both be grateful for the rights that you have given us and to fight for the rights that are being um, disenfranchised even among people that we know in different ways. We love you and we uh, invite you to, um, to receive our worship in this next hour. Uh, would you meet with us? We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.